Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and on today's episode, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the Old Testament. Today, Scott Frizzell will be teaching us on the prophets both during the exile and after the exile. And so last week, Peter Snell, if you listen to the podcast, I believe he covered about 10 prophets who came before the exile. And then today we'll be going over, I believe it's seven or eight prophets that are both during and then after the exile. Kind of an interesting way of splitting up the prophets. Traditionally, it would be in major and minor prophets. We've decided to do it uh, with reference to the exile, and I think you'll enjoy that today as we go through that. It's a little bit more of a chronological or historical perspective. Scott always does an incredible job. He is a uh, he has a master's, I believe, in history and teaches history regularly. So I think he's a wonderful storyteller and a great one to teach on this topic. We'll be moving on into the New Testament in a couple weeks. We're off for Christmas, and then we'll push on into 2019 with a New Testament series. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. But today, again, we'll be looking at the prophets both during and after the exile. So here is Scott Frizzell. All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks. Appreciate that. Every time Kyle asks, or Kyle or David asks me to teach, the first thing I do is I put it in our uh, shared calendar on my phone so my wife knows so she won't schedule herself to work. And then every single time I teach, she schedules herself to work. I'm starting to see the trend, and I talked to her about it last night. It's like, man, I hate that you're working again the day that I'm teaching. I gotta take the kids by myself and get them to class and then not loiter too long and pick them up so teachers don't hate me. I was like, Ann, you're not gonna get to hear my lesson. She's like, yeah, too bad. (laughs) So I guess I'm connecting the dots there, but maybe you can enjoy it for her and we can all make jokes at her expense on the podcast that she won't listen to. Um, Or she will, We'll we'll find out, she won't. She won't. She doesn't have the attention span for a podcast. Um, Okay, so this is our last week of uh, Old Testament, and we're doing exilic and post-exilic prophets, so prophets who are prophesying during the exile and then after the return to Jerusalem. And how to approach a whole bunch of prophets is kind of challenging. Uh, Admiration for Peter last time. I podcasted. because that was a longer list of prophets than I was having to deal with. And then also I feel like we can't wrap up the Old Testament series without kind of like trying to pull some of it all together at the end. Like I feel like if I just talk about the last three prophets of the Bible, we really haven't done justice to the whole series and the whole purpose of going through the Old Testament. So if you'll humor me, we'll do a little bit of kind of backtrack review, trying to put everything in context. Then we'll do the prophets and then we'll try to wrap up. So that's the game plan. So pardon me while I go old English teacher here. I used to teach English before they hired me to teach history and discovered I was much better at that. So I apologize. Uh, So this is a plot line. I don't know if you remember this from like middle school English. Uh, So the idea is that you can take any book and you can chart it out on a plot line. So you have like your setting of the book. So so what's the setup? And then I made the setup really long. That's not right. Told you that's why they moved me to the history department. Then over here we have the conflict, right? What's the central problem or question or motivation that drives the whole book, the story? Then we have rising action, complications, right? Oh no, surprise twist, right? All that. Then at the very top, we get to the climax, boom, things explode in the books that I'm reading. Uh, And then 
falling action kind of things are resolving. Oh, it's all better, and then it's over. Okay, so um, one of the things that I like to do when I'm doing the Old Testament is plot line the Old Testament because I think it helps kind of put everything together in the end. Uh, spoiler, the falling action is everything I'm talking about today, <laughs> but everything else. So real quick, if, you, if we're doing just the Old Testament, don't try to do the whole Bible. It gets super complicated. But just doing the Old Testament, what do we kind of see as the setup? What's kind of the setting? Genesis. Genesis. Okay, I'll write that. Maybe tell me a little bit more. That's good, though. And don't look at my handwriting. Okay, so we have Genesis. What's kind of the central problem or setup, right? The bend. What, what's the problem that we're trying to fix the whole Old Testament? Okay. Separation from God, right? So if we go very beginning, right, we've got kind of Eden at the beginning, right? There isn't separation from God. Things are peachy. But then we very quickly, by Genesis 3, right, we hit our problem, our conflict. There is separation. We ate the fruit, right? Kicked out of the garden. How do we get back to God? So then we have a whole series of rising actions. So doing our best to not go out of order, what are some rising actions we can think of? Ways that we are trying to deal with the separation. You know what? I'll put it in order. You just throw it out. I mean, you've got everything from the flood to the Tower of Babel to... Okay. I mean, then Israel wandering in the wilderness and <laughs> kings and judges and all that. Yeah. Else, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to find a way to summarize that without writing all of everything that you said by saying something you didn't say, but you kind of inferred. Abraham? Right? Genesis 12. So we've got all the, so kind of the first major step in trying to deal with the separation, right, is God speaking to Abraham, making a big covenant, saying his people are my people, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, right? And then we go a little bit further, and Kyle mentioned this, right? We get to Moses, my senior Bible teacher would say the Mosaic covenant, which just sounds really cool. Uh, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Noahic, right? So Mosaic covenant, right? He calls forth Moses. We deliver the Israelites from Egypt. We do a whole lot of wandering, dot, 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 right? I thought you were going to write whining. And a whole lot of whining. Uh, not that whining. Not, not, there was probably some of that whining too, but we're not going to talk about it. Um, this is a Church of Christ. So um, wandering, whining, right? And then after all that mess, right? We went through my favorite book, Judges. We already talked about that. We get to the kings, right? So we want a king. So there's, uh, we'll say, United Kingdom. Woo, I did not make this a big enough rising action. And a divided kingdom. Okay, so remember when we talked about the divided kingdom, right? We had Rehoboam. Kingdom splits ten and two, ten tribes up north with Jeroboam, two tribes to the south with Rehoboam. Um, which one's the bad guys? Well, I mean, they're both bad, but who's the worst? The north, yeah. They're terrible. Goes back to Jeroboam, right? He doesn't want people going back to the temple, so he builds up these rams or bulls, kind of like the golden calf, and it's like, yeah, just come off your sacrifices to these instead. It's pretty much the same thing as going to the temple. Kind of a bad setup from the get-go there. Um, so we've got the divided kingdoms, and they're kind of going along, and then all through all of this, right, we've got the prophets. Okay, what would you think the climax is of the Old Testament? I feel like that's big. Like, if that were a movie, that would be like the 10-minute sequence in the middle where there was like some tears, you're like, oh, and there's like dramatic music kind of, right? So, um, destruction of temple, right? Because 
through all of this, if our goal in the Old Testament is to fix the separation, right? At that point, the temple is the method for that, right? There have been some waves, right? At first, there's not really anything formalized structure-wise with Abraham, right? But you're the people, but there's not a, a formal structure. But by the time we get to Moses, we're starting to see this formal structure for dealing with that separation, right? This idea of you go to the temple, you offer sacrifices to atone for those sins that you've made, uh, and it brings you back closer to God. Not too close, right? We've got curtains separating us from God, holy of holies, all that stuff, but, but we're closer. Um, so when the southern kingdom, northern kingdom falls first, right, because they're worse uh, and they do not return, right? Sennacherib has some fun, no doubt. But then the kingdom of Judah, when they collapse in 586 and the temple is destroyed, it's kind of a fitting closing moment, right? At that point, it's all resolving what just happened, right? The people of Judah are carried away into exile. The temple, what's supposed to be the primary method for fixing that separation is gone, and everyone's just kind of, what's going on now, right? Which makes what happens in the exile and after the exile, I think, especially exciting. Um, it feels almost like a footnote because I feel like, at least growing up in the church, we spend so little time with exile and post-exile stories because there's not that many like exciting stories. Like I think Daniel's about all we do with the exile, but it's so exciting because we have the people of Israel are incredibly lost in this moment, okay? I mean, they were lost before, right? In a not following God kind of way, but now they're lost in a confused sort of way, right? Like. Yeah, they were bad, but they had a method for atoning the separation, fixing that separation, but that's been destroyed. They've been removed from their homeland, and now they're not exactly sure what's next. Like, is God still interested in them? Is there a new form, a new way to fix that separation? Like, what, what's going to happen? So we end up with our, oh wow, they're all blue, and I don't know which one was the good one. Um, this looks promising. So we've got our exile prophets, okay? So... I'm going to jot them down here. We've got Jeremiah. We've got, I'm going to go in the order that I want to go in. Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and of course, Malachi. Some great names here. Um, okay, Lamentations is on my list too. That's written by Jeremiah, but it's not a prophet. Though that was really confusing to me as a kid. I really thought there was a prophet named Lamentation for a really long time. Um, it's not. So what happens in all of this falling action is we get some resolution, okay? We have the climax of the Old Testament. Boom, this is what happens, but now what will happen? And so everything that happens here helps put this in relief and helps us understand, okay, this is what this was about and this is how this hasn't changed, okay? And that's what's interesting because the Israelites don't know that when they're taken away into exile. They don't know what God's plan is or if God still has a plan for them. Um, and then what's even more interesting is this falling action, of course, sets up the sequel, which not everyone saw coming, right? Uh, they didn't know if they were going to make it or not. No, New Testament, right? And so, and that's where we're going next? That's right. Oh, even better, right? I'm, I'm setting you up for the 30th. Everybody remember this, okay? So um, it kind of gives us the new status quo by the end, and we could, you know, continue our line on again and, and do the whole thing all over again. So each of these prophets kind of does something different for resolving that central problem, okay? And so we're kind of going to break them down and see which each one does. But before we do that, probably an important question, 
What is a prophet? One of those deceptively easy questions. Someone who speaks on behalf of God. Someone who speaks on behalf of God. I like that. I think, uh, yeah, no, that's close. I, th- I like that. Somewhere someone told me, someone who speaks God's will, right? And as a kid, it's like the people who tell the future, right? Like, they're going to say what's going to happen. That's why that stuff's interesting. When I found out as a kid that Revelation was like the prophecy of the end of the times, like, well, I'll just go read it, and then I'll know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> but so it's not exact. Prophets aren't just telling the future, right? They're telling God's will, which is sometimes pretty straightforward, like, Get with it. Fix it, people, right? And sometimes is more, um, sometimes is, is very confusing and very, hey, this is going to happen, but you're not going to understand at all what it is from what I'm saying. And you're not going to know later whether this has happened or not because it's very confusing. So, so here's our groups. I'm going to clump these two fellows together because they're very similar and we don't have time to go too in-depth. So Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel... Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, and if we're now that we've finished making our line, we could even kind of divide them in two. These guys are our exile friends. These are our post-exile friends. Okay. Um, so Jeremiah is the earliest of the three. So he writes Jeremiah and Lamentations, and according to Jewish tradition, parts of First and Second Kings. So take that as you will. Jeremiah prophesies during the fall of Judah. So he's there at the fall. Um, if you read Jeremiah, there's some fascinating stories about that guy, uh, and he has a rough go of it because he's speaking God's truth to these people who aren't interested in obeying, right? So they throw him in a cistern, they threaten to murder him, say they're going to, and then whoever's supposed to murder him doesn't show up, so it's a little bit uh, sketchy for him. But he has an interesting spot because he kind of plays the bridge. So now that we've filled in our plot line, if we look back at the climax, right, the destruction of the temple, right, Jeremiah is there for that. He sees it, he's with the people, and he watches the people being taken away. So it's his job to kind of pull these two together and send them off. So a lot of Jeremiah is spent connecting the exile with everything we just went back through, right? So he says, this thing you're in, this exile, this is not a meaningless exercise. This is not, well, God's done with you. You're gone to Babylon. He's connecting and saying, look, this is why you're here. All this stuff back here. But God's not done with you that, that, yet. That's important. I think one of the sto- verses that I see pulled out of Jeremiah the most is the, I know I, the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Which makes really good sense when you think about when it's coming, right? That his temple's destroyed, they've been pulled away, and he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, right? So he's saying, <clears throat> what you're suffering through isn't lost, right? You haven't fallen off the plot chart, right? You're still on the same trajectory with God, but he's not done with it yet. Then we have Ezekiel, the craziest person in the Bible. Like, he is my stereotypical picture of a prophet. Like, when I think of this weird person that no one quite knows what he's talking about, and he's just strange, like, that's Ezekiel. So he, like, he gets called by God, and God tells him to eat a scroll, and he does, which is just weird. And then he says, oh, it tastes like honey which good, glad you think so, Ezekiel. God uses that, right? That was the point, I think, but it's just not what you expect him to say after he eats the Bible. Um, and then right after that, he has a vision where God like pulls him up to heaven by his hair. Like it says, God grabs his hair and like pulls him up to heaven. And it's part of his whole interpretation, but he's, he's a weird dude is the point. Um, but if what Jeremiah is doing is taking 
the exile and connecting it for people, right? So that people can say, okay, this thing that I'm in the middle of, this isn't the end of it, right? God is going to use this uh, for good. What Ezekiel is doing is providing kind of some more, uh, more clarity to that hope, right? Jeremiah is saying, this is why you're here, okay? Connect all this that you did, right? But the separation that God's trying to fix is still the goal, okay? Ezekiel says, so have hope, okay? Probably the most famous story out of Ezekiel where we can camp out for a few minutes is the dry bones, right? Told you, he's a weird dude, right? Ezekiel saw the wheel and got pulled up to heaven by his hair and ate a scroll and went to the valley of dry bones. So he goes to a big valley where there's just a bunch of dry bones. Um, and God speaks to him and all of a sudden like the bones start to assemble and like start marching around and then they get flesh and then but they don't get uh, air and breath and life until the very end. So I guess it's just like a bunch of like cadavers staring at him, like, which is gotta be terrifying. So he's preaching, he's prophesying during the exile. So he's talking to people who have been ripped from their homeland, kind of think that God's still with them if they believe what Jeremiah said. And now this other dude showed up and he's talking about like bones being reanimated and how he was hanging out with a bunch of dead people and then God breathed life back into them. But what I think is really interesting, if you look at the Valley of Dry Bones at the end, um, this is verse 13, it says, Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Woo, scary. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am, that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Okay, so that's what God says to Ezekiel at the very end, like after he's done the big dramatic dead bodies thing, right? Then he kind of ends with this, and I think there's a few key parts of that verse that speak to the Israelites who are in the middle of this story that we've been looking at. Okay, this is Ezekiel 37, if you want to read it later. But the... Uh, First, he's going to pull you out of your graves. We can look at it a few ways, right? Maybe he's talking about literally like, hey, end of times, I'm going to rip you out of your graves and we're all going to go to heaven. Maybe. Or there's certainly a lot of Israelites that are interpreting this moment, this removal from where they're from as a grave, right? And I will come inside of you, right? I will live in you. We can see that a lot of ways too, right? Maybe he's talking about heaven, but maybe this is a more messianic moment for Ezekiel, right? Maybe he's doing some foreshadowing for where we're going in our next line right? Um, and then, and I think this is especially important for them in their context, and I will settle you in your own land, right? There's something about being somewhere that's not familiar, um, that doesn't feel like home. Um, like when Ashley and I lived in Texas, and I promise not to speak of it, um, something doesn't feel right when you don't know anyone, or you don't know as many people or you don't even know like street names and you're like, where's the closest Taco Bell? Like there's something, something calming, comforting about knowing your surroundings and feeling like you're a part of them, right? And there's something very jarring about having been ripped out and taken somewhere else. So they've been ripped out from everything they've known and it has brought them to question their faith, right? Because the temple is the center of their faith. That's been destroyed and they've been removed from it. So then it's not just about the closest fast food option, though that's always important. More important is the closest target, right? Um, but it's about how do I define myself with God? And God speaks to them through Ezekiel. And he says, yeah, it may feel terrible right now. You may feel dead right now, but I'm not done with you. I'm gonna rise you, bring you back to life like these bones and take you to a land of my own, right? So there's something powerful in that hope, message of hope that Ezekiel is bringing towards them. So. 
speeding along here. Finally, the last of these exile prophets, the one who speaks to them while they're out of their land, right? While they're feeling especially removed from God is Daniel, the one we probably talked the most about in Sunday school, right? Because we got the lion's den and the fiery furnace and the the big statue that falls down and all that fun stuff. Uh, But what I think is really interesting about Daniel is chapter 7, okay? So if you know anything about the book of Daniel, the first six chapters of Daniel are the VBS part of Daniel, okay? Everything in the first six chapters is stories, okay? Like exciting stories that you can just like pick up and read like a book and like, okay, cool, that was exciting. The last six chapters of Daniel are like the weird wonky prophecies. We're like, okay, whatever you say, Daniel. And some of it doesn't make total sense. Actually, none of it makes total sense. But my favorite is in chapter seven, because Daniel has this dream about four beasts. Um, And it's during the reign of Belshazzar, which without getting super historical on you, we're tail end of Babylon. We're about to be Persia, right? The Judeans are taken away by the Babylonians. They live in Babylonian captivity for a long time. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians and then let them go back. Okay, so this is kind of the tail end of captivity. And Daniel has this dream, and it's called, the subtitle in my Bible is Daniel's Dream of Four Beasts, which sounds like it should be interesting reading regardless, right? And you should definitely go back and read the composition of these beasts later, because it's very interesting. But it gets really weird at the end. There's like, he describes these four beasts that come up, and then this fourth beast comes up, and he's mean and terrifying and very powerful. He has large teeth. Uh, and it crushed and devours its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns, which sounds interesting. Then, while I was thinking about the horns, there became there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them, and then three of the first horns were uprooted, and this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and mouth that spoke boastfully. So we have a trash-talking horn that just <laughs> erupted in the middle of these other horns of this beast that's eating everyone. And he's like, yeah, what you going to do about it, Daniel? Uh, and Daniel's like, okay, this is a very strange dream. But what's interesting is after Daniel describes this ridiculously elaborate dream that doesn't make any sense to us, he then asks the angel or the voices of God there to interpret the dream for him, and they do, and it still doesn't make any sense. If you look at the second half of verse 7, starting in verse 15, so like I said, go back later and read this yourself. If we had time, we would. Uh, He says, I was troubled in spirit. No doubt, right? Just saw the four beasts, and... uh, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he explains it all, and you know, each of the beasts is a king that's going to come, and this fourth king is the worst, and he's different than the others. So they're like, okay, who can I think of in history that fits this? All right, a fourth king that's worse. You could Google and go like way down a rabbit hole on this, by the way. There's like all kinds of charts out there if you're a chart person. I'm not a super big chart person, but I'm a history person. And they've got like, well, what if Daniel was talking about the Romans? And what if Daniel was talking about today? And what if the big beast is, the horn is Donald Trump? What if the horn is uh, uh, Caesar Augustus? What if the, so anyway, what if it hasn't happened yet? What if he's still, it's crazy. But what's interesting is, despite having no clue what Daniel's talking about, although maybe a lot of educated guesses, but certainly no truth to it, Daniel still provides something that Ezekiel and Jeremiah haven't, okay? So Jeremiah and Ezekiel have tried to frame this exile in terms of everything that happened, right? Connect it to the past, some hope for the future, right? What you're going through is not God abandoning you. You're reaping some rewards of what you've done, but God's not done with you yet. And Daniel establishes God's sovereignty. He says, yeah, you're away. You feel like you're distant from God. You've seen the temple as God 
being there, right? And maybe you don't feel like he's super powerful or involved in these other places that you are. But if anything, the book of Daniel is showing us that God has power over all these other people and all these other gods that they've encountered, right? If we stick with the basic VBS stuff, the fiery furnace and uh, Daniel Lyons and clearly say that to us. But even if you look at the four beasts, where he's laying out this vision of something great to come, there's these four beasts, but they all get crushed by God. God has power over all of them, even the creepy horn, right? So like, Whatever it is that happens, say, look, you may not be done with bad things yet, or there may be more bad things down the road, depending how we interpret this one, right? But God has sovereignty over all of these things, okay? So we've got these people in exile. They've recentered. They've been given hope. They've kind of reestablished in their minds God's sovereignty, okay? And then we pivot, and we come to the return. So now these last three prophets, which we are doing okay on time. These last three prophets are all once they've returned to Jerusalem. So when they return to Jerusalem, Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying at roughly the same time, okay? If you want to read one book, you should read Haggai because it's shorter. Um, But they are both prophesying about the temple because the Israelites have come back and they have not rebuilt the temple, which considering as we correctly pointed out that that's pretty much the climax of the whole Old Testament, like you finally get back there after going through all this and connecting your exile with everything, and then the first thing you do when you get back is not rebuild the temple. Seems kind of foolish. And then God starts prophesying to them and saying, I'm going to continue destroying all the houses you build and sending plagues and sending people to attack you until you rebuild my house first. And eventually, unsurprisingly, people buy in and listen. So Haggai and Zechariah kind of redirect them back to building the temple, Um, but also kind of remaining focused. It's like they come out on the other end of their maybe punishment, if we want to think about it that way, right? And maybe they're not any smarter than they were in the first place. Maybe they're still making the same mistakes, and they try to redirect them towards that worship. There's a lot of details about the temple and what God expects out of the temple and expects out of worship, which if you have more time, you can go look at that. And then the last one is Malachi. And Malachi, I think, if we were putting this on our little line here, Malachi is like right in the corner, okay? So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the reason when we say how many years are there between the Old and the New Testament, it's 400. Malachi is roughly 100 years after Zechariah. So there's like nothing except for him all by himself, which is kind of interesting. So like, okay, so what is this guy doing? Like, why is this included in the Bible? If we've come back from exile, we've rebuilt the temple, and then there's a hundred year gap and this guy shows up. Like, why is that? Why is that there? Um, But I think of all of the prophets, Malachi does a better job of turning the corner that we just drew, right? He's the one who he's he talks a little bit about refocusing on the t- on temple worship, kind of, you know, don't lose track of your priorities. But more than anything, he's pivoting towards both a Messiah and the end of times, which are kind of scary to think about in conjunction with one another, right? Um, but if you look uh, at the very end of Malachi, this is the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. This is Malachi 4. Judgment and covenant renewal says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, which is pretty creepy language. Uh, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So we've got some great imagery. We've got people burning alive with fire. And then we have calves frolicking in the field. Uh, Pick which one you want to be. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb or Sinai for all Israel. 
See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And that's where the Old Testament ends. So it's a really interesting note to end on. We've got the promise of really terrible destruction and then also the promise of Elijah, who of course already is dead, right? So we know he's probably not talking about Elijah, right? He's probably talking about Jesus, not to claim to know anything for certain, right? But he's pretty clearly connecting this to, look, I'm sending someone, a great prophet, a new messenger from me to you to turn your hearts. And if you don't, see the line, right? (laughs) Remember what we've just been through. So Malachi... I think doesn't make total sense with the rest of the Old Testament, but if we see it as kind of a link from old to new, it makes more sense, okay? It's taking, it's not, it's not helping the Jews connect what's going on in exile or post-exile at all, but it is connecting with where we're going to go when we look at the New Testament. Now, all that being said, that does give us a complete kind of breakdown now that we've finished the Old Testament to kind of say, okay, well, here's the story of the Old Testament in Scott's terrible handwriting, um, and we kind of see where it goes, but I don't think that Jeremiah through Malachi, the falling action, right, of the Old Testament that kind of resolves and foreshadows the next chapter and all that stuff, I don't think that it's totally useless to us. In fact, I think it's probably more useful now in many ways. Um, I think you could make the argument that a lot of society today might feel kind of like that exile, right? The uh, being away from your homeland, right? Away, distant from God, in a place that doesn't seem to know or respect him. So using your thoughts, what, what, what lessons might you draw out from any of these six prophets that we just looked at that speak to you in today's context? Or like how many times do you like experience the same problem for like the five millionth time and you're like this time I'm going to do this <laughs> but right so maybe kind of that refocusing from Haggai and Zechariah mm-hmm. that's that's a good point I think this like kind of the up and down I love the way that you plotted it out it it reminds me of that um, parable and maybe Luke 15 16 I guess rich man and Lazarus where it mm-hmm. talks about you know, if you just show me angels or whatever, you know, I would decide to follow you or believe. But he's like, talks about how in the Old Testament they had God among them and they still didn't believe, they still didn't follow. And so it's interesting to see, like, you know, today we would say, well, some of us maybe, you know, God doesn't seem real or I don't know if he's there. But I mean, you had people that were following him as a cloud and fire and <coughs> still didn't do the right things and continue to kind of do this cycle of trying mm-hmm. to reestablish write in their own words and you know just continue to fail mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting like that separation from god is is established very early on 
and it continues, and there's there's nothing we can do to make that fixed. Yeah. You know ourselves. I think it's really interesting. Um, several years ago, just more than several years ago now that I think about it, because we were having church at Cherry Road, so I guess that was a long time ago. It feels recent. Um, I was in. I went to a Wednesday night Sunday school class or Wednesday night Bible class that Sunday school class on Wednesday night uh, that Jason Knight taught. Uh, Jason Knight was teaching it. And I was like, I will go to that. I don't care what he's teaching about, but I will go. And he was teaching about Daniel, and he said he feels like Daniel is one of the most present, currently relevant books of the Bible. Now he's an Old Testament scholar. That's his master, so of course he's going to pick an Old Testament book. But I think he's got a great point. Like Daniel's living in exile in a land that doesn't respect God, that doesn't care for God, right? And he's a young man, yet he somehow finds his way to remain true to what God has called him to do in spite of all these other forces. Like, and it's not like, well, I'm going to do this so I can get higher up in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and then I can effect change. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, he's turning away every opportunity that comes to him so he won't compromise on himself, and the older I get, the more I think of that story in my present context and feel like super guilty about it. Like how easy it is to say, like, like make a temporary tweak or sacrifice, even in like thought, like not even necessarily in actions, but in the way you perceive or do something because it is more, makes something else more easily accessible or easier to pull off something. Um, and thinking, well, big picture though, we're fine, but like Daniel doesn't compromise at all. And God, like, comes out swinging in that book, like, more so than in any of the others. Like, he's out there boldly proclaiming God and not bowing in the face of whatever they throw at him. And it kind of escalates. Like, in the beginning, it's like, yeah, you can get a better place on the court if you eat this food. And he's like, no. And then by the end of the stories, it's like, yeah, you can stop praying or you can get eaten by lions. And he's like, still no. And God's sovereignty is just continually established in his life in a way that, like, I don't know, this may make me sound bad, but it seems so easy like for Old Testament people in Israel or Judah to be like, well, of course God's going to show up. Like, we're living in God's country. Like, the temple's right there. Like, but Daniel's like nowhere near that. Like, it's more similar to where we are. Like, he's living in a land that doesn't know or understand his God, and yet he's not bending in any sort of way. So, like, I've, I don't know. The more when I was revisiting this, the more I feel really connected with Daniel and kind of the way he sees it. And even some ways kind of shamed by that, like his, his boldness and his lack of, his refusal to turn or, or even like tilt one way or the other. But I think that God shows us in Daniel what happens if we don't. And I doubt that in the midst of all of that, Daniel thought always things were going to be fine. Or he did, probably did because he's a better person than me. But it didn't look that way, right? Like, when he gets thrown in the lion's den, people aren't going to say, oh, God's going to do better things through this. Like, but he did. And then he came out even more powerful, and God was more powerful in the minds of the Babylonians because of that. So, any more thoughts? Anyone else have a prophet or a thought here that speaks to them? I don't want to cut him off, but I am almost out of time. But... Man, I think the Old Testament is incredibly rich um, and has more than just a section of the Bible that foreshadows Jesus and tells us why Jesus comes right, to fix that separation. But 
I think it tells us more about the struggles of following God and being a Christian than the New Testament does. The New Testament tells us some great lessons from Jesus, and we hear some of his words, and we see how the church grows really rapidly in Acts, and we get some specific directions in the epistles, but the Old Testament's where you really get to see people trying to live for God, and through the whole thousands of years it covers, you see all different kinds of scenarios where it's safe and easy to follow God, and they still struggle, and where it's not easy, and where it's terrifying to follow God, and they struggle, and that's kind of the commonality. Like, there's nothing about Old Testament, following God in the Old Testament, that is easier, even though he's there in a pillar of fire, like you guys said, right? So I think it, and there's times in your life where the conditions of your life make it easier to follow God, but that still doesn't mean it's not a struggle and there's not challenges in that. So I think we can look back at these stories and see some great examples, even if maybe the details don't quite quite line up with your life. You know, you're not having a showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel or anything like that, but kind of the same messages kind of connect. So. Okay, thank you to Scott for an excellent class. I wish you could see what he wrote up on the board. It was wonderful, the little plot graph that he did and uh, kind of the rise and the fall of the Old Testament. Of course, with Malachi, we are at the bottom. (laughs) We're at this place of, well, you know, the temple is uh, rebuilt and some things are better. They're back in their homeland, Um, but there's no real clear direction or purpose. Of course, as we move into the New Testament, that is the direction and the purpose, and that is really the reason uh, for the Old Testament um, is for the Messiah to come, and that's what this is all moving towards. But as Scott said, can't have one without the other in effect, and to the degree to which the Christian church ignores the Old Testament, I think it's to its detriment. I think there's a lot of beauty to be found, a lot of wonderful stories, and as Scott uh, talked about, there's a lot that we can learn from a practical standpoint with how we live and the place we find ourselves in. So for Scott, that is, the, uh, the book of Daniel, let's say. Um, but for, uh, for you, it might be a different book. It might be, you know, books like Psalm, or it might be books like the Proverbs, wonderful books that are to be found. And for me, the book of Genesis, just an incredible book. I think there's so much beauty to be found in there, both in the creation of the world, but also in the promise that God makes to a regular nobody in the middle of Mesopotamia. So, I think there is a lot to gather from the Old Testament. I do encourage you to read it, to study it, and to treat it in a way that it deserves to be treated, and that it is a special proclamation of God's glory to His people that now, of course, includes us through His new covenant. Our next series will be on the New Testament. So as we move into that, books that we're certainly more familiar with, um, but definitely some truths and some things that we are not familiar enough with. And so we'll study that together starting on the 30th, And we'll move through that and then on to other sections and themes as we uh, start 2019. I want to thank you, as this is one of our last podcasts of the year, for listening throughout this year. For those of you who attend Highland on Sundays, for those of you who don't and who just listen to this podcast, or maybe you're preparing for a lesson in your own church somewhere around the world, I just want to encourage you uh, to continue to be faithful to God's Word. And uh, I'm just grateful for you and hope these words are inspiring to you and helpful to you. Um, as you proclaim God's word to his people. Have a great Sunday and a great week, and we will see you next time on the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.